Hello and welcome to Life in the Slaughterhouse Part 2. Today we are going to be covering chapters 4 through 6. I'm here with... Tim Regan. And Raymond O'Neill. And I am Graham Heiss. You see here at Gibson, we make guitars for the young that want to be old, for the old that want to be young, and all the yippers in between. You see, we care for our instruments, and we use the best that we can for our good woods and our fine materials. And let me tell you something, we're all the way out here in Nashville, but we're also inside your house, let me tell you. Because the sound you make with your voice and that music is the sound in our hearts. So thank you all for coming by Gibson and for listening to this podcast. Brought to you by Gibson. The world of guitars is out there. But choose Gibson. Hello, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're going to be going through Life in the Slaughterhouse, chapter 4 through 6 this time around. Um, we're going to start off with chapter 4. And uh, the first part of chapter 4 is, is pretty much about the revenge on on Billy um, for Ruri's death. Um, Lazaro is is also a big part of that, and he's going to carry out and fulfill that um, for Weary Because um, Weary died in... Lazaro's arms, so that's kind of a big part, and it got, got Lazaro very emotional, and he's like, you know what, I'm gonna kill you, and he has that in his head, that whole plan, he's got that planned out, um, you know, Billy did a lot of things to kind of wreck Weary's vision and dream and stuff like that, of living the soldier life, he yeah. killed the three musketeers, he did some other stuff too, which was, you know, pretty big. Yeah, um, I think Weary is, uh, I don't think he was very friendly uh, with Billy uh, in the end because Billy overall is kind of incompetent when it comes to uh, dealing with these scenarios. He was detrimental towards Weary, and I think that's why Weary sort of blames him. I think that's why he holds it to him. And I think Lazaro's vendetta is uh, sort of derivative of his very strong drive in all of this, and... The, He's going. He's undergoing this incredible uh, trauma, you know, because they've been captured. They've had to march. They've they've been in terrible conditions, and it has it's degraded them, and it has broken them down into the, their most basic uh, forms. And for Lazaro, I think that uh, it shows 
in his desire for revenge, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, there's another part of it was the Tromadorians, um, the, the aliens from the future planet. They kind of meet up, uh, and they've got a lot to do in this chapter as well. You know, it's all over the place with this chapter and, and with so much of the book. And the Tromadorians kind of say that. They say there's no beginning, no middle, no end. And that's kind of like how the book is. No beginning, no middle, no end. It's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. All these parts are just everywhere. And that's a key part of the book when they say that. Yeah. you know, and it, it sort of uh, gives us a uh, format for what we're reading. It's, there's really no beginning, middle, or end because we're traveling all over the place in the mind of uh, Billy Pilgrim. First, we have his life as uh, an eye doctor. Then we have a soldier who's undergone terrible things and someone has sworn a vendetta against him. He's been kidnapped by aliens. And there are so many um, parts of the book and so many plot points, it makes it almost impossible for the reader to form a coherent thought about uh, the book in general. It is chaotic, and it's following... The entire thing seems to follow a format that's laid out by the Trelfamadorians. Um, Another theme that I noticed with the Trelfamadorians was uh, their discussion of uh, free will. They said that uh, only talk of free will is found on Earth. And they've supposedly been all over the galaxy. They've seen uh, planets live and die and uh, so on and so forth. So these aliens uh, see that only uh, as unique to Earth. But it's also uh, worth considering about uh, what they said is Billy Pilgrim does not express a strong sense of free will. He fought like a soldier. He followed his orders. Now he works a job and goes to the Lions Club, and all of this follows a very strict routine. It's like clockwork, and he's bound to the schedule. It's not. He doesn't express, like, I'm doing what I want or what I love. He's not passionate, and he doesn't have a lot of drive to express free will. I... Uh, I think that he might disagree with that when he's older or later in his future. We don't know much about his future yet because he usually reflects things from the past, but uh, we do know that he's eventually going to make a public speech about the uh, aliens, and he's trying to express how they live life, so he might be trying to um, uh, have Earth consider that, you know, have everything they consider. Um, if yeah. I uh, could bring up a point, is he expressing free will um, by saying that? Is, or is he just trying to like spread the word of the Trelfamadorians, which is, it's obviously not about free will uh, for them. They don't, uh, it's unique to Earth, so they would not express it either. Well, I feel like the uh, Tralfamandorians have, they express this free will as, like, they don't care about anything, just like, the I, I guess death could be a good example, because they don't, they say so it goes, like, death mm-hmm. is not a big deal, but here, yeah. it's like a duty that we mourn for the people that we know when they die, yeah. but with them, they don't see it as a big thing. Yeah, also, like, other people, like, that are just dying, randomly, like, Derby, like, you know, he's that, um... The kind of like the the coach he t- coached tennis and he's that high school teacher who's kind of older but he came into the scene and he's you know his death he's like and he just dies like he you know Vonnegut just puts that in there he's like oh and 
you know, Derby's just going to die later on. He just keeps going. And then, like, and so it goes. He says that after his death. Mm-hmm. Even though he's not dead yet, he's going to die in 68 days. But he's, like, foreshadowing his death. And he's telling us about that. Also, the slave laborer from Poland uh, mm-hmm. who did the stamping for the badges. It's like, he died. He's dead now, too. So it goes. Like, he just keeps saying that. Um, mm-hmm. As far as when they keep going. Just going to keep dying, keep dying. He keeps putting men in there. Um, uh, also about death, though. Um, there's a... Uh... He follows the um, the pattern of saying "so it goes" after uh, any mention of death. He like even um, uncorks a uh, bottle of champagne and it says the champagne was dead. So it goes. Yeah. So there's even like comedy and a bit of uh, light-hearted humor uh, in this book. Yeah. But. He follows that pattern, and he also follows the pattern that the Trelfamadorians laid out in saying there is no beginning, no end, no middle, no suspense. He follows that, because he eliminates suspense by outright telling us what happens, um, and his journey through time is taking us through the beginning, middle, and end all at once. So we see all of it happening. We see the end in the middle, we see the middle at the beginning, and the beginning at the end. It's... It works like that, and it, this this book seems to be um, not only eliminating suspense in the sense of the story and telling us this is how someone dies or uh, this is what's going to happen, it seems to be eliminating suspense in telling us how the book is written. It's giving us the key to look for. It's It says that... Um, this is what the Trail Famidorians laid out, and that's what the book follows. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. It's, just, it's interesting how it's all going to connect, especially in the next couple chapters, which we'll get to after this commercial break. Thank you guys for listening. What do you drive when you want to get out of the house? What do you drive when you want to get on the highway? What do you drive when you want to listen to a song only your heart can sing? Well, let me tell you what you don't drive. You don't drive a Ford. Those cars are terrible. They always break. You don't ride a GMC because nobody knows where they're made. And you don't buy a Honda. Because Honda is garbage. If you want to explore new roads and you want to find different destinations, you want to build tough, you want it to last, you want to make a great all-around car experience, let me tell you something. Stick yourself in a Volkswagen. Because only Volkswagen makes a wagon that folks talk about. Volkswagen. The people's. Volkswagen. Since 1941. I wonder what happened in that year. Oh, my God. 
Alright everybody, welcome back. Uh, we're going to be going to um, chapter up. chapter 5 in this book. Um, and it, it's kind of a, a long chapter, lengthy chapter. Um, and the beginning of it, he starts out in a prison camp and... Um, you know, this one of his guards uh, beats up this, this civilian for saying something in English that he didn't really think was offensive, but the German guy kind of took it as very offensive to him. And so he's like, you know, why me? Why are you beating up me? You know, it wasn't that offensive. And and the German's like, why you, why anybody? And that's kind of like big theme, I think, in this chapter especially. Why is this happening to anybody? Why is this happening to Billy? Why did Weary die? Why are all these people dying? Why is this, why is this their future and their only part of it? I actually do agree with you there. Um, I think that, that line alone really does sort of help sow chaos in what we're thinking because mm -hmm. this book so far has been jumping around so much and having such uh, chaotic language and form of writing um, I think it's sort of meant to confuse. That's, that is the purpose of this. And the entire essence of uh, the war and doing all this is meant to be confusing. It's hysteria. Yeah, know, that's a big part of it. Um, also, there's, there's other things in this chapter that go around. Um, you know, and it's, it's a long chapter, so there's a lot of information in it. But another part of it is the Englishman. Um, they get into that, and so when they get to the camp, they visit these Englishmen who are like, you know, it's kind of like an uplift on the chapter. Wouldn't you say, Ray, a little bit of an uplift? Yeah, because there's a lot, of, a lot of dark stuff going on, and this was yeah. just, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit of relief because mm -hmm. the, uh, the by you, by anybody part, it's, it, uh, um, well. Yeah, I mean, well, the Englishmen, by you, by anybody, that was, uh, also the Germans, but also the Englishmen, when they came into uh, perspective and, like, kind of humor, like, um, Billy, when he was too close to the fire at the concert, um, and he kind of, like, his, his junky coat was kind of, like, catching on fire, the guy's like, you're on fire, lad, and that kind of... Oh, yeah, that, that was... Yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, yeah, it's supposed to be a sad moment, but so I say it's kind of like a little uplift from all the death in the war, you know, everyone had the... Nice coats, and then there's Billy with the yeah. terrible one. Well, more than just, like, uh, the English uh, Englishman, for example, there's humor uh, in a lot of the book, in its forms of writing and how uh, they speak, and, like, silly puns, like, uh, as we mentioned earlier, when the champagne was dead, he says, so it goes, as if it's a real death, is... And it seems um, that they're just mentioning it in any form of death, even if it's silly, and it's it really sticks to the uh, theme of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, the Englishmen, like, even after the coat scene and everything like that, they're like, the Germans are making fun of you. Like, that's what they're doing. That's why they gave you this coat. It's all a joke. Like, you don't understand that? And mm -hmm. he's like, and they're like, Jerry did this to you, you know? And he's like, who's Jerry? And they're like, Jerry, the poor chaps are... You know they're they're going after you through this, and he finally kind of realizes he's the blunt of the joke. Yeah. He's the he's the small weakling. He's getting made fun of, put down, and he's he just thinks that it's bad luck. No, he's the weakling who's kind of getting beat up because he he didn't even yeah. have the weapons when he was taken in. He's like that that mm -hmm. weak of a guy, and so, you know, just stuff like that. And it's kind of you know the the Englishmen are kind of like, don't you realize that you realize that nobody really you know cares for you. You're kind of like, you know, you're kind of like the joke of it all. Well, yeah, in some sense. And so it kind of makes that humorous in saying that you're kind of a joke and, like, you're not really supposed to be here. Yeah, he doesn't... He, it seems like he doesn't really 
care about this a lot, even though everybody's making fun of him, because uh, this kind of relates to when he was on the the Tralfamandorian's planet, and he was, like, being caged in a zoo, and everybody was, you know, like, he was naked, and everybody just, like, watching him and, like, making fun of him, and then they said, like, how happy are you here? And he was, like, as happy as I am as I was on Earth, you know? Yeah, he kind of feels out of place wherever he is. Well, that's a big the, part. I think there's a lot of um, comparisons between, like, the Tralfamandorians and his uh, captors. I mean, like... They have him going into these uh, camps and, like, facing the uh, the ridicule of others. And, like, the soldiers are all making fun of him. He's a spectacle. Uh, he's something to watch and have fun with. And that's exactly what they do. I think the Englishmen are just sort of pointing that out to him. And I, the, the similarity between the Tralfamadorians and the captors, it... It has to be an intentional thing. It's being put naked into a zoo and laughed at. Uh, if you take the aliens out of the story, it could be something you heard from a war story as well. It's yeah terrifying. Of him being made fun of. Yeah, that that's a big part of it. And also how he doesn't really, like... He just wants... he like The Truffer Midorians, they don't really care about that. And he doesn't really either. Like He's just like, leave me behind when he was back... You know, in the war, he's like, just leave me behind. He doesn't care about dying. He's like, you know what? If I die, just leave me behind. I don't want to go anymore. And, like, they've got that same view. So they are kind of got similar views as, as, as far as, you know, so there are some differences as well. Um, what's going to happen is we're going to join you guys right back, and we're going to go through Chapter 6. Uh, so thank you, guys. Uh, we'll see you back after this commercial break. Thank you very much. When I light a candle, I don't light a candle. I put flame to a fire started by only one candle company. The candle company that's been around for many years now. The candle company that started way back when. Years unknown to us because time can't recall. You see, those shores that came upon those candles... And those sunny side days, where did you find them? Where did you smell them? Let me tell you something. It wasn't in the ocean where you found that smell. No, it was captured by the ocean. And only one candle company can do something as well as they can. And that candle company puts a handle on everything. And it is Yankee Candle. So thank you for listening, and I'll meet you inside your house for a bright time. If you can handle a Yankee candle, then thank you for choosing us. Brought to you by Yankee Candle, surprisingly.
Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, we're going to be going through the book again and some other themes um, for it. Um, so, like, the beginning of this, you know, the themes and this and these chapters throughout, another big theme is is Lazaro's mindset and what he is and where he's at. Um, his his views on what he's going to do to Billy and stuff like that. Like, he's, what he did was, one of his stories was that he... His thing on revenge is like revenge is a need be it must it must be attained. You've got to have revenge. There's no such thing as peace. It's only peace through revenge. Like when a dog bit him one day and he gave the dog steak and he fed it to him with yeah. shards of metal inside and watched the dog mm-hmm. as the dog was bleeding out of his mouth and just yelping for help and he was laughing as his torture was going on and he had, yeah. he had no respect for the dog's dignity. Just like just killed him basically and like laughed about it. Like just because he bit him, there was no forgiveness, no peacefulness. It was all revenge. Well, you've got to think, um, Lazaro went through the same war as uh, Billy. He he fought in this senseless war where everyone was rounded up and persecuted, uh, murdered, and they died for no good reason. So this dog hurting him, he automatically justifies to himself that this thing is beneath me. It doesn't matter, and I can kill it. And there doesn't really need to be a solid reason for that. He was um, attacked, persecuted, beaten, and laughed at for no reason. So he can do this, and he can justify doing this to something else because of the same... uh, trauma that he had gone through himself yeah um hmm uh yeah that's a good input would you would you say this is his way of coping with it or it's just like a general thing well it's billy um he goes through his uh sort of ptsd his journey uh through time that's his form of uh trauma he goes back and he recalls previous events and he relives all of it. I think that Lazaro is still living it. He is... His mind is still at war. He Everything else is stacked against him and he needs to fight it. He needs to justify destroying his enemies and it doesn't... He, he doesn't see how senseless it is and he doesn't see the comparison between him feeding a dog shards of metal and, like, Nazis rounding up and killing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even when Lazaro said that, he's like, you know what, he, he kind of warned Billy, forewarned him. He was like, if you don't, if, if I ring, if they're your door after the war and all this is over and after everything's done, if, 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 my, if your doorbell rings, have somebody else answer it. Because they're a dead man. And, like, he had no, like, even to a, like, the dog thing I understand, but even to another human... He was like, I'm going to kill you. I hope you know that. Like, he had nothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, he could have called the police. He could have done all these things. And Billy just kind of, like, accepted his fate almost. Like, the, we talk about the spirit of 76. That was his magical year when everything went down. And he kind of saw that. And he, he, like, just let it all happen. Like, why would he do something like that? Well, it's also, it's, as we uh, talked about before, uh, the 12 Famidorians said free will is something only found on Earth. And I think that uh, Billy follows the uh, Tralfamadorian mindset in that sense is he has no real choice. He has to do what 
uh, he knows is going to happen. And whatever does happen will happen no matter what he does. I think, I think that he believes in that to such an extent that he does not, he really doesn't care if uh, Lazar is going to kill him because to him, it was going to happen either way. It was fated. Mm-hmm. His death. Well, he, uh, how do you think about like what happened with his death and stuff like that? Um, I I thought it was kind of interesting because he didn't when when he figured out how he died he he didn't really show any expression with that he didn't really care because he just you know he he kind of knew that it was gonna happen he didn't know how it was gonna happen but um uh he didn't see much of it he was at a public he was at a public uh speech about the trail Themidorians and then um he saw that he got sniped by someone. And um, he didn't really think anything of it. It's funny how he was talking about the aliens when he got shot. Yeah, like no one believed him. Yeah, that's like a connection. Like, that's when he was shot, when he was talking about them. And, like, we'll really just, uh, like, people see someone talk about aliens, they can go, oh, that's ridiculous. But when they get shot, they're like, maybe there was something to it. Yeah, they kind of, like, have that sense of mentality. But, uh, so, you know what? Uh, We're done with the. Discussion. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, Hello, everyone. Today I'm here with Brother Joe and his experience um, with the prison camps throughout Germany. Uh, We're going through the book um, Slaughterhouse-Five, and in there is a lot of war scenes and and things that connect with uh, World War II and and prison camps in Germany. So Brother Joe is going to talk to us today about his experiences in in different uh, prison camps uh, throughout Germany. Brother Joe, what was the experience like? Um, well, one of the days that I visited, it was very cold and wet, and so it gave it more of a uh, an eerie feeling to be there and to visit. Uh, my experience throughout the whole visit was... All I can remember, everyone was very quiet. Uh, the tour guide would take us to different parts of the camp and show us different things and where things took place and where, for example, where executions took place, where, um, you know, we went to the gas chambers, we went to where wow. they were, where they would sleep in these barracks where it was dirt floors and wouldn't, no, no cushions whatsoever. I mean, um, it was very a very difficult visit. It must have been about three hours that we were there, and we're all quiet. Yeah. But um, there's a very profound there's there's an energy there that words can't explain that is still present there. So it's kind of heavy. Yeah. What um, which which prison camp was this exactly? Actually, this was in Auschwitz. This okay. Is, actually Poland but I mean I'm, I would imagine that these were kind of the same kind of places like in Germany yeah. but um, uh, Auschwitz was the concentration camp and then we went to Dachau Birkenau, one of those which was the death camp the actual death oh, camp so okay. where, where the people were shipped by train to this place, to this death camp, separated, and executed. Okay, wow. 
All right. Thank you very much for sharing your experience and your story, Brother Joe. You're welcome. All right. Have a good day. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our discussion. Thank you for joining us here at Life in the Slaughterhouse with me, Graham Heiss. Tim Regan and... And Raymond O'Neill. All right, we'll see you next week for another uh, interesting... Thrilling episode! Yeah, all that too. Hello, we'd just like to give a quick shout-out to the Beatles. Um, Mr. Dooves from um, Adventure Time and Jake Bug for um, letting us use their music to put in our podcast. So thank you guys for coming up with the songs to use in our podcast. Much appreciation to you guys.